The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we'll be talking about brain injuries from two very different perspectives. A little later on, Rochelle Saunders will be speaking with Adrian Owen about detecting awareness in patients in a vegetative state. But first, we'll be talking about how sometimes a traumatic brain injury can lead to some extremely uncommon side effects. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell. I have two guests with me today, Jason Paget and Maureen Seberg. They are the co-authors of the new book, Struck by Genius, How a Brain Injury Made Me a Mathematical Marvel. Now, Jason Paget is an aspiring number theorist and mathematician with acquired savant syndrome and synesthesia. He draws the grids and fractals he sees synesthetically. He's currently the manager of three futon stores in Tacoma, Washington. Very good to have you here, Jason. Thank you very much. And Maureen Seberg is a New York author with several forms of synesthesia and is an expert synesthesia blogger for Psychology Today. Previous to Struck by Genius, she wrote the book Tasting the Universe, People Who See Colors in Words and Rainbows in Symphonies. Thanks for being here, Maureen. Thank you. Now, Jason, uh, to start off, take me through what happened on September 13th in 2002. Um, my friend Angela, she was on a uh, first date with this guy at a little karaoke bar, and they had some drinks, and they called me and, and wanted me to drive. Uh, so I drove over to this little karaoke bar that was pretty close to where I lived uh, in a real rough area at the time um, and wound up singing a song, uh, having a, a Coke, and then leaving. And as we left, there was uh, two guys that were singing karaoke in there, and they left behind us. And uh, I didn't see it coming, but they attacked me from behind. Um, Angela saw it, and she said they actually were at a run came behind me. And from my perspective, all I saw was a flash of light, and I felt this thud and it's like just what boxers I think talk about when they say you get that flash knockdown it was like a little literally like a flash bulb went poof and the next thing I knew I was on my knees just getting pummeled and trying to figure out where I was what was happening why I was being attacked um, and, and I remember thinking actually I was being attacked by like, a gang of people and then having this intense feeling of overwhelming dread that I'm going to die right now and uh, getting that fight or flight instinct uh, and surprisingly, it was fight that came on. And I remember having this thought of I wanted to hurt one before I died. Uh, and I grabbed one of the guy's legs and I bit him on the inside of his leg uh, and pulled him down to the ground. Um, and then his friend just started kicking me uh, in the back and the head repeatedly. And this we've been fighting now for probably about 30 seconds to 40 seconds. And until finally, the guy that was kicking me said, give me your goddamn jacket. And I literally rolled off his friend, tossed my jacket off, which at that point was already torn up. It was a little cheap Wilson's, you know, leather jacket, $99 jacket. Uh, and they grabbed it and ran away. And uh, I ran back into this karaoke bar. Uh, and I'm um, bleeding and, and people had seen this happen, you know, and nobody called uh, 911 or did anything. And I ran back in there and I said, uh, that the guys were singing karaoke there and that their names were on the karaoke slips and that their fingerprints were on the dishes and their dishes were still on the table. And the girl that worked there said, if you want the dishes and their uh, names from those slips, go look in the garbage cans. 
and then told me, and I wouldn't wouldn't let me use the phone to call nine one one or anything, uh, and and then made me leave. And it's a longer story, but it turns out that they were dating the guys that attacked me, and at that point they were trying to protect uh, the guys from getting in trouble. But we did wind up catching them. Now, while this would have just been uh, sort of a, a passing moment in people's lives, this changed everything for you. How how did you change after the mugging? Yeah, after this happened, everything when it moves, I can imagine things having a slightly pixelated quality and and being the best way I can think of it to describe it is like individual picture frames. You know those old flip books that you can draw a picture and you flip through it and you see the little character move? It's like that, but just not not so dramatic. It's just enough to give everything this pixelated, slightly pixelated look, and everything is most definitely like grid-like. Um, everything that has a curve uh, is no longer like perfectly curved. It has like little tiny straight like tangent or secant lines around the edge. So the smoothness is gone from everything because of this picture-like quality, and it's there permanently. Now, it's not just your vision that changed. Your behavior changed as well. Absolutely. Um, that that was act, that was the toughest thing. Uh, it, since everything looked so different, um, it, it was very difficult just to to deal with it. Uh, it was very disorientating um, for for months, and I had extreme OCD that came with it. Also, like I, before, I would you know drop food on the floor, pick it up, eat it, no problem. Uh, open doors, and I literally couldn't open doors. I was. Uh, Lysoling my money and then putting it in the microwave, um, repeatedly washing my hands, uh, not being able to. I remember being at school when I finally did go back to school uh, for math and not being able to get to classes if the little handicap button was broken because I couldn't, you know, get the doors open without touching them. Uh, I mean, there was it was a lot of difficulties that came with it, especially the OCD. Uh, and now I have an artificial disc in my neck, um, so I have some other physical problems too. But the, actually, the worst part, though, uh, you know, when it comes to that kind of thing was the OCD. OCD was, was terrible, and eventually I had to get uh, help with it just to, to where I could get out of my house because I I pretty, I pretty hold up. I've had, like, I think, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, from the attack. I, I just didn't ever want to be in public, I, and if I was, I wanted to have my back to the wall, you know, where I could see everybody because when I was attacked, um, you feel safe, like, when you're out in public and there's people everywhere and you think there's something like that could, couldn't happen. And then it does. And then nobody helps. And it, it, it makes the world seem like a much more dangerous place, especially right after that happened. And, and so I hold up in my house, uh, basically for almost three and a half years. Um, I left to get groceries only. Uh, and I would leave only like when I was out of everything, you know, and I absolutely had to leave the house. I had like rugs and towels and blankets, uh, stapled over the windows. Um, not any beam of light came in that house. Um, in fact, when I finally did, uh, get out and went to the doctor after being in the house for so long, I had a massive vitamin D deficiency because of lack of sunlight for such a long amount of time. Well, just for comparison's sake, because uh, this is brutal, but what were you like before? Before? Um, I wasn't mean or anything, but I would say shallow for sure. I mean, all I did was goof off, go to bars, party, chase girls. I mean, life was definitely fun, but it was very shallow, and that was pretty much the extent of it. You know, going out with my bar buddies, drinking, and and 
and that was it. That was life, you know, and, and for years, that's what I did basically from like 16 till, till almost that point, you know, that was life. So I just goofed off and that was it. So you had a complete change in personality and then you add these, I guess, for lack of a better term, visions in a lot of ways. Now, when did you develop an interest in math? Because you were locked in your house, not understanding exactly what the changes you were going through were. Well, the, the biggest thing that's, uh, I mean, like, okay, imagine like if you see something moving in front of you, and, and I'm going to exaggerate it just so that it's, so it's easier to picture. So imagine you see a, like a car moving in front of you and you see one picture, like a, like a movie, you're watching a movie, you know, with picture frames. And then you see the next picture frame and the car has moved like a foot. And what I started, since everything had this jittery look to it that just seemed so grid-like, I started mentally overlaying like a piece of a graph paper on the top of everything that I was looking at and found that it was really easy to do. And then I found as long as I made the grid sufficiently fine um, that everything across my field of vision would line up with a vertex point on this mental graph. And as I found out later on, it turns out, you know, that's what one of the things that calculus is, 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 is cutting things up into these integrals and the, and the smaller and finer those integrals become, the more accurate the measurement gets. So when you're forced to see things as discrete picture frames, you know, that's, that's whole multiples of something, you know, not, not an infinite number of pictures, it automatically is forcing you to see in, this, in a grid structure, which is what math is. That's what's so beautiful about it. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> This is Science for the People, and I'm talking with Jason Paget and Maureen Seberg, the authors of Struck by Genius, How a Brain Injury Made Me a Mathematical Marvel. So at what point do you realize that there might be something happening to you over and above a traumatic brain injury? Because all these things taken together are intense yeah, I knew right away. I mean, at first I thought it was the pain medicine. The next day, without question, I knew something was was completely different. Um, I didn't know it was going to be forever, uh, but it was it was scary. But at the same time, it's so pretty. I mean, imagine like what clouds, especially anything that spirals. It's 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 so beautiful to see it because it really makes. It's how how things are made of these little triangles stand out. In other words, like everything that has a curve, instead of having this curve, just has this little tiny edge to it. And it it shows and how long those edges are, how far apart the picture frames are, describe like velocity and acceleration and all sorts of wonderful things. But they do it in a perfectly geometric way. And uh, so I, once I started noticing that it was a grid structure, I mean, I knew there was something mathematical to it, but, but at the same time, I didn't know how to describe it in mathematical terms. Like uh, I would always just say, I, that looks like pieces of pie. And I was just, at the time, I was just describing triangles, uh, uh, different triangles. As you draw the number pie, which is basically, you know, uh, squaring a circle, you know, and you continue to square it, you're making all these different types of triangles. So as you draw it, there's just basically an infinite number of triangles of all different sizes. And so everything that I would see, I was like, wow, if we drew pi this way and that way, I could take that picture and slice it up and build it with with pi. And no matter what it was, I found as long as I drew it a certain way, you can break it up into pieces of pi and, and describe it geometrically. 
So now most people that have traumatic brain injuries do not see these kind of things. They do not start to think about uh, the world in terms of math. So how did you research what might be going on with you? Um, I did a lot of research on the internet. Um, well, one of the things, like when it came to to like a breakthrough on like what pie was and how it all really came together, that this truly was something that that is real and you really can describe just about everything with it. Uh, was I was at at home and I had been thinking about this and and going over all of this geometric information in my brain, but I still didn't have the right language to describe it. And my daughter was watching television and a commercial for overstock.com came on and she asked me how the TV worked. And I said, oh, little, you know, rectangle or square pixels change color. And as they change color, that changes the picture. And she goes, but how can that be? Because there was a big circle from overstock.com. And uh, she goes, how do you make a circle with triangles, you know, or rectangles? Because, you know, a square or a rectangle is two triangles when you cut a corner to corner. And it was just like there was a window right there. And I was like, you can't. You just make those those squares, those triangles smaller to infinity, but you never actually get a perfect circle because perfect circles don't exist, literally. Because to have a perfect circle, you have to have an infinite number of sides or edges, and you can't observe infinity or even count to infinity. Now, did at any point you think that maybe you were having delusions or hallucinations instead of... Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I I, totally. I, I, I'm, yeah, I actually remember thinking that. I was like, what? You know, you see these crazy people and they're talking to themselves. And I remember thinking, you know, when you see people like that, you're like, wow, they don't know they're crazy. And I remember thinking, am I that guy who thinks I'm seeing pie everywhere and I'm not and I'm the only one who sees this and this is, you know, something that's not real and just in my brain. There was definitely a lot of, of doubts uh, when it came to that because even though it felt absolutely sure, I remember thinking, well, those people are absolutely sure too. And that, that was one of the great things about going back to school is going back to school and learning how to do traditional math, uh, which I, I eventually I, I met a physicist who, who talked me into going back to school. And I, I took my very first, you know, Algebra 99 class and they graphed, you know, a, a line, uh, just a linear equation. And I remember asking the teacher and saying, you mean every one of these equations is describing geometry? And she said, yes. And I'm like, well, then we are talking about the same thing. We're just doing it two different ways. I'm talking about it in the pure geometry, but you're just talking about equations that are describing the pure geometry. And so traditional math is fantastic because it can prove these things. Whereas like when I draw pi, it certainly looks like it could be right and it sounds good, but how could I prove it? And I couldn't. So of course, once I went back to school, once I hit trig, I was able to prove that what I was drawing was what I said it was. When was it confirmed that you had not only traumatic brain injury, but also acquired savant syndrome and synesthesia? Now, that was that was actually with the help of Maureen, correct? Yeah. Do you want to answer, Maureen? Or? Yeah, sure. All right. Well, uh, Jason and I met, and... Um, we thought it would be a good idea to have his brain looked at uh, because he had not had access to the proper testing before. And I was about to moderate a conference um, panel on synesthesia in Stockholm. And one of our colleagues there um, was able to test Jason in nearby Helsinki. 
And I very much wanted Jason to make his debut at this conference and talk about his case. And he was a real trooper and decided he would he would do it and go on to the testing. So this is a real odyssey we have been on together, yeah. as you can tell. And um, he was um, tested by a team of neuroscientists who determined that, um, indeed, what he he actually in a very genius way, kind of figured it out on his own through the internet and through watching documentaries on uh, Daniel Tammet. Mm-hmm. But uh, the doctors did indeed see what they needed to see to confirm the savant syndrome and the synesthesia in the brain scans. Now, what? maybe clarify for me, Marie. Now, you have synesthesia as well. Yes, so I do. What do you see compared to what Jason sees? Well, it's very similar in that it's involuntary and it's beautiful and you can't shut it off (laughs) even when you want to. Um, But the difference, there are two differences and two main differences. I was born with mine. So for me, it's not overwhelming. It's not upsetting. It's not overstimulating. I don't know what life is like without it. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's very normal for me. Secondly, uh, the photisms I see, and photisms are things seen in response to stimuli in synesthesia. So if I'm listening to music, say, I always use the example because it's my favorite, say Yo-Yo Ma on the cello, I see these wavy lines, not, not even lines, forms really, that are glossy and like Christmas peppermints. They kind of roll, uh, wave, it's wave upon wave, all smushed together like a piece of candy. And um, <clears throat> so these photisms I have are complex and very specific to me, just the way Jason's are. But my shapes are much more amorphous and much simpler and in my case, always associated with color. Whereas Jason's are enormous and really crystalline and complex. And when I saw his video for the first time, uh, he had uploaded a video of himself drawing what he sees onto YouTube, which is how we met, how I reached out to him. I thought it was synesthesia on steroids. I had never seen anything like it. And I am very active in the synesthesia community, so I know what a lot of other people see besides me. You're listening to Science for the People, and we'll be back with Maureen Seberg and Jason Paget, the authors of Struck by Genius, after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. 
welcome back to Science for the People. I'm talking with Jason Paget, who has acquired savant syndrome and synesthesia, and Maureen Seberg, writer and synesthete. We're talking about their book, Struck by Genius, How a Brain Injury Made Me a Mathematical Marvel. Okay, so I know a lot of our listeners are really wanting to dig into the science around this. So, can you, let's let's define some terms here. Uh, now, you are, Jason, an acquired savant, and you have acquired savant syndrome. So, what is yes. that, first of all? Uh, acquired savant syndrome is where you're, you excel in one area, but it's very specific. A lot of times people, it, it's kind of a derogatory term, but you hear people use the, the phrase idiot savant. But what they're really saying is basically like you're normal or below normal in everything, but in one tiny, very specific area you excel. And the acquired part means that I acquired it after birth. I wasn't born with it. Like Daniel Kamet uh, acquired, they believe he acquired it from seizures that he had as a child. Um, but Sorry. in most cases. Uh, he memorized pi to like 25,000 decimals. Um, he learned Finnish in like a week. Uh, he, he's been on a lot of uh, shows on the Science Channel, uh, things like that. He, uh, he has synesthesia. In fact, I was watching a show on him when I when I when it, it hit me that wow, this is something that's real. I remember actually running around the house and being all excited because uh, how we were talking about how I doubted, you know, because I at the time, you know, didn't know that this was something that existed that people could see colors or taste what they hear things like that. I didn't know about synesthesia. And when I saw that show, it was actually a relief to me to know this was something that was out there. Um, so th- anyway, he has a- acquired uh, savant syndrome. And But in most cases, people are born with it. And in most cases, they're autistic. Um, so that's one of the reasons why they're interested in talking to me and Daniel Tammet uh, about it is because we're able to describe what we're seeing. Whereas uh, there's there's people that have you know autism that it's in very extreme and they they can't describe what they're seeing yet you can hold the number up and they can instantly tell you whether it's prime or not but they can't tell you how they're doing it but they're always right you know <laughs> it's absolutely amazing things but um, but the difference again being that I can describe what I'm seeing so how rare is uh, acquired savant syndrome. Apparently, it's uh, there. I'm one of 40 people, about 40 people in the world that have acquired savant syndrome. Although I think it may be higher. You know, there could, it could be double that. You know, or triple that. Who knows? But uh, but you know, they're just undiagnosed. Because I I went on for years. Uh, I didn't have any you know uh, insurance. Had no way to to get any testing done. And at the same time, was you know doubting myself at times too. Um, so the, the fact that I was able to get testing done uh, was was fantastic it, it, and and relieving and helped me. Get on track, you know, into into the world of, of of synesthesia, so I could talk to scientists who are studying it. I can also go back to school and then and talk to real scientists and mathematicians, you know, about what I'm seeing, how I'm describing things. You know, does this match up with how they describe, you know, reality? If if I'm seeing it this way and it's describing velocity and acceleration, then it's got to work, you know, both ways. It can't just work geometrically and then not in equations, you know, or, or else it's just not true. It, it's but what's so amazing is that they're both the exact same thing and everything that like when that if I draw it or if I if I use the way these picture frames change uh, to describe velocity and acceleration, it turns out it's identical to what we do in math and physics. It's just doing it in pure geometric form. You at all interested in math before the mugging? No, I hated it. I was one of those kids. I still can't believe it. I would say, when are you going to use that? Uh, how does that apply in the real world? Oh, man. And, and I remember saying it like condescendingly. 
And I look at it now, and, and there is literally nothing that you, that you can't describe with it. Okay, now let's talk about the, the diagnosis itself. Now, how mm-hmm. did they test for this? How did they prove that you have acquired savant syndrome? Yeah, func- what they do is something called a functional MRI. The MRI is like will map like the geography of your brain, so you could see like a tumor in there, but it can't say like what your brain is doing exactly. A functional MRI, what it does is it shows how much oxygen your brain is using and where, and they're they're discovering just amazing things about the the brain because of these functional MRIs, and they're taking people with all sorts of gifts, you know, from math to to English to to drawing to in, to, to music, and so anyway. It puts you in this functional MRI and say, for instance, like you start writing with a pencil while you're in the functional MRI. The part of your brain that controls writing is working harder because you're writing. Since it's working harder, it uses more oxygen and the machine can show where your brain is using more oxygen. And and since you're doing it while you're writing, they can then say, ah, that part is controlling writing. And so they put me in the functional MRI and they'll flash hundreds of pictures and they're just random pictures of all sorts of things. And every once in a while, an equation pops up just fast enough for you to recognize it and that's it and then gone you know about maybe half a second at the most and then they watch what happens to your brain which part of your brain starts to work hard when when you're doing math and they found that I had conscious access to parts of the brain that we normally don't have conscious access to and that when I'm doing math um, instead of just having the math area of the brain activated it was the visual cortex along with the mathematics and Marine, we're working in conjunction. Marine, how about synesthesia? How did they how did they diagnose that? Well, that was that was a similar thing. Um, they showed Jason formulas, um, some of which were real formulas, and some of which were nonsense formulas. And the ones that were real, and the ones that he had an actual response to, lit up the areas in the brain that are known to house synesthesia, which primarily are the fusiform and the angular gyrus near the ears. Jason is awake, apparently, in the parietal lobe, and that is why, and we are not, and that is why he is seeing the processes of mathematics. So, of course, the big question is why? Why why does does your traumatic brain injury result in acquired savant syndrome uh, versus many other injuries not resulting in um, much of anything good? There, there, There are some theories, are there not? Um, there are there are theories about like burst of neurotransmitters, uh, how your brain can rewire itself when injured, um, and depending on where it rewires and how it rewires, uh, and the plasticity of the brain, you know, and along with the genetics of each person, there's so many different factors. Um, but I I don't know why I I got so lucky. I mean, I feel lucky, and there's been times where I felt like it was the worst thing in the world, you know, because I was all alone, holed up in my house, yet at the same time seeing this beautiful beautiful universe but but being very you know alone and 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 uh you know yeah i can't tell you why it's me and and not somebody else or why it's so rare but uh i mean i can i can only say that in in most cases you know traumatic brain injury is all bad and i feel very very lucky to have any good come out of it and it just turns out you know that in my case the good really really turned out to be really good because it, it is how things work, and and since I at the time didn't have any technical math skills, the only way I had to describe it was layman terms. So, Maureen, you wrote about a number of theories for for why this could have happened. Do you want to outline some of those? I tend toward uh, Dr. Daryl Treffert's um, take on this. He is the world's leading expert on savants. He has had over 
300 cases in his 50-year career. And he is the man for the world over uh, to whom you have to travel to really get a good look at this. So Jason and I went to Wisconsin where he is based and uh, Jason submitted to interviews. And Dr. Treffert actually says that the takeaway from all of this is that we all come with factory installed software or genetic memory. And I know that sounds far out, but this is the world's leading authority on savant syndrome, you know, a, a real man of science. And it's, it's as though we ascribe all these abilities uh, that, that we consider instinct to the animal kingdom, the monarch butterflies who fly to the same 23-acre tract in Mexico year after year, or the way geese fly south, or salmon migrate to spawn. But we are just as remarkable as human beings, and we don't really consider, we don't think of ourselves in that context. So what Dr. Treffer believes is Jason's brain sort of went to a default setting when it was badly injured. Now, there are a couple of, ways, a couple of theories about how that actually works, and one of the leading ones is that a flood of neurotransmitters is released in the brain, and that causes the rewiring. But everything that Jason is able to do now, Dr. Treffert would say, was innate, but was just not available to him previously. Yeah, I think about about it a lot. Like I just had a daughter, um, and she's almost four months old now. And and she, when we moved her, and she threw her arms out like she was falling, and and she was so little at the time. I thought, how could she possibly know to react that way or to try to grab something? And and I started thinking the same thing. This is the instinct that is kind of built into you when you're born. And when she felt like she was falling, it was because her position changed rapidly in a short amount of time. You know, so she was understanding, you know, velocity and acceleration, even though it's just on this instinctual, very geometric basis because she felt it, you know, but still they react to it and they're reacting to, to you know, an equation, you know, which, which falling or feeling like you're falling is literally an equation, you know, because geometry and equations, again, are one and the same. So there is some sort, I, I, I do agree with him that there is some sort of, you know, instinctual uh, software that we're all born with, and all of it has to be mathematically based. Even when you just listen to how the brain communicates when it clicks back and forth, I mean, that's like a code. And so we're born somehow naturally able to to read this code that our brain is doing when it makes all these clicks back and forth. So it's pretty amazing when you think about what we can do w when we're born. Definitely. But so yeah. I guess what we're saying is the mechanism by which this happens is, is still speculation? Nothing can be proven 100%, you know, there are people that, that think it's neurotransmitters or just the plasticity of the brain, and it, and it could turn out to be, you know, a combination of them all. But uh, I, I for sure think we have, uh, like he says, factory installed hardware. Whether or not it's completely that, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I wish I knew for certain, you know, so I could tell you absolutely, you know, how it works. Because then that, that is one of the things that they want to learn is, is exactly how this works so that they, they can find ways to induce this. Um, uh, Dr. Treffer and I were just in uh, 
Scientific American, and they have an implant that they're developing that is going to simulate or, or actually be, you'll be able to upgrade your brain and, and have savant syndrome installed. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It's in the July issue of uh, Scientific American. And that's one of the things they're learning. Is there a way to help people who have had traumatic brain injuries or people who are just wanting to get better at math or at music? Is there a way to induce savant syndrome without a brain injury? And and it turns out it looks like there will be, there is or will be for sure. Maureen, did you want to add anything? Yes. Um, in fact, there's a device that's been developed by Dr. Alan Snyder. He's a, a leading researcher in Australia. It's called the Creativity Cap, and it's a transcranial magnetic stimulator that some of your listeners may know from um, its popularity in treating depression in current um, clinical settings. But what he does is he's um, rework it so that it stimulates the brain in such a way that one would behave as a savant while wearing it. And he tests people prior to wearing the cap in drawing skills and in multiple choice questions, and then he um, tests them again, and they score off the chart while they're wearing um, this electrical device on their heads. So uh, it really is a brave new world in terms of brain research already out there, and it's just going to be a matter of time before it moves from the laboratories into practical use. And this is such a, a new field. I, I hesitate oh, to give yeah. people too much uh, hope in this area right now. Oh, yeah. We're right. looking at years away. We're looking oh, at, you know, 15 to 20 years. I mean, the, the implant is being developed, but again, it's going to, I would definitely say it's got to be a decade, you know, or more before it would start to be used. But again, they can read all about it in that issue of Scientific American, and they go into it. And, and of course, the developers of that have a lot more knowledge about it than I do. Okay. So where, what is next for you guys? Guys, because this is this is a remarkable story, and I and I, I think I just read that your your story was optioned for film. Uh, yeah, um, it's, it was optioned uh, for a film with um, Channing Tatum and Sony uh, got the rights, and and it uh, looks like it's going to be a film here in, in two to three years with Channing Tatum starring in it, and we're all still kind of in this this shock about it. Uh, it's, it's, I, I feel very, very lucky. And uh, for me, I want to use it as, as, a, as this chance to, to teach people, especially those who, who are like I was, that think math is silly and they think it doesn't apply or, and they think they can't learn it. If I can see the universe differently, geometrically, and see all this and be the way I was, I know other people can too. Because I, I, when I draw it now and I show people how it works, like people will come into, like I don't work at the, the stores anymore, but I did work at the, these futon stores for a long time. And people would come in and I had drawings up all over the wall and I would use any excuse I could you know, to bring up math. And I could see their eyes glaze over, and at least 99% of them. And they would say, oh, math is terrible. I hate it. Don't even talk to me about it. But then two minutes later, they were totally engrossed because they understood it. Like I would, I would start saying something about the number pi, which I, of course, like talking about. But when I say that, the majority of people, it's like this mystical, magical thing. And they don't understand it. They don't know what it is. They don't know why so many people think it's a big deal. And they don't think they can understand it. And then two minutes later, they completely understand it. And even though it's in just geometric terms, they still understand how it works. 
Maureen, are you interested in math, first of all? Because what was it like to write this book? <laughs> well, I am. Um, you know, I'm a mensin myself. I belong to the high IQ society, but I am not a savant. I am not as off the charts as Jason. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I have aptitude, but I don't have... Um, the same set of skills. And Jason was very, very patient and explained things to me multiple times until it started to make sense. And I think where it really clicks and where I recommend your um, listeners go if they're having trouble visualizing some of this is to the website struckbygenius.com or to the website fineartamerica.com where much of Jason's art is on display. And of course, pick up our book, which is available in Canada uh, in um, all stores, all outlets, because we have a nice plate of pictures in the middle of the book showing Jason's art. And where it clicked for me was to see the visual that went along with Jason's very enthusiastic um, spoken descriptions of this. Like if you see his circle subdivided by triangles up to 720 triangles, you understand what he's saying that if you hone in on the edge of a circle, not from our perspective and our size, but at a very microscopic, tiny, even quantum scale, there are no smooth uh, curves. Everything is a series of dashes. Um, and it, it ends up being uh, relative. And, and Jason makes you, and I think in reading the book, people will get this, Jason makes you both zoom in to the tiniest thing that you could possibly uh, consider, and then he takes off like a rocket, and he's got the bird's eye cosmic view of things. And it's, it's, it was a very Alice in Wonderland feeling for me as a writer. You know, I am very, very small. I am very, very large. You know, take this pill and you shrink and this pill and you become giant. And this is the way his mind works now. So there's, there's a, I have a drawing that I call uh, relativity. And it's a way like, when, again, when I'm, we're talking, especially the people who have no math skills and no interest in science, when we talk about relativity or parallel universes and ultimate realities, it sounds too weird to be real and people have a hard time believing it. So I have a drawing that, that teaches it just like pi. And I use the Doppler effect, which a lot of people use, but then there's a couple questions at the end that I change that really makes it click home for the layman. So I always say, because a lot of people don't know what the Doppler effect is. So for those who don't, the Doppler effect is, you know, the way sound waves stretch and compress, like Imagine when you hear a car drive by you, it goes meow, and it changes pitch. And the reason why it changes pitch is as the car is approaching you, the sound wave is leaving the car, and a long wavelength is a low pitch, and a short wavelength we hear is a high pitch. And since the car is approaching us, that wave hits us more frequently, so it's like having a shorter wavelength, so we hear a higher pitch. And now the car moves past me, and it's moving away from me, and that wavelength stretches out and gets longer, and we hear a low pitch. But now we add relativity to it, and say the car is driving away from me and towards you. Well, since it's moving away from me, relative to my position, the sound waves are stretching out. I hear the pitch getting lower, but it's moving towards you. So relative to you, the waves are compressing. You hear a high pitch. The person in the car is traveling with it, so there's no Doppler effect for them. They hear a medium pitch. And then what you do right there is you stop and say, what sound is it making? The low pitch to me, the high pitch to you, or the medium pitch to the person in the car. And it's actually making all three sounds relative to who's looking at it. And then you say, which reality is the 
real one. All three are real, they're just relative. And then you take one more step and say, now imagine we have an infinite number of people all looking at that same car. Every person is moving at a different speed from zero to the speed of light. Every single person hears a different sound and every reality is different but valid. It's just relative. And that applies to everything. So that's the idea of relativity in a nutshell and how everything is literally relative to the observer and the observed. That made sense. Absolutely fascinating story, you two. Thanks very much for being here. Oh, thank you. And thanks thank to you. everyone for listening. That was Jason Paget and Maureen Seberg, the authors of Struck by Genius, How a Brain Injury Made Me a Mathematical Marvel. We've linked to the book on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And we'll be back with Rochelle Saunders' interview with Adrian Owen about detecting awareness in vegetative patients after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Professor Adrian Owen. He is currently the Canada Excellence Research Chair in Cognitive Neuroscience and Imaging at Western University in Canada. His work combines structural and functional neuroimaging with neuropsychological studies of brain-injured patients. His most recent work has shown that functional neuroimaging can reveal conscious awareness in some patients who appear to be entirely vegetative and may even allow some of these individuals to communicate with the outside world. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, so I think we should probably start by defining some terms. Um, what do we mean when we say someone is in a vegetative state? Well, a vegetative state is often referred to as uh, a state of wakefulness without awareness. And that's because these patients will open their eyes. Uh, they'll often have what we call sleep-wake cycles. They'll go to sleep at night. They'll wake up during the day. Um, they'll, they'll look around the room. Uh, they won't ever fixate on anything in particular, but they, the important thing is that they, they are animate. They're not like coma patients. And people often confuse vegetative state with coma. And a coma patient really will, to you and I, will look like they are asleep. But a vegetative patient will often uh, look like they are awake. And in, in some senses, they have these uh, the these uh, these uh, these rudimentary behaviours. The important point is, though, that they they don't respond to any form of outside stimulation. If you try and attract their attention, they won't look in in the direction of uh, in your direction. Or if you if you try and ask them to raise an arm, they won't they won't they won't move at all. So they're entirely non-responsive. Yet um, they're in this curious state between. Um, being awake but seemingly completely unaware of, of their situation or the outside world. And what about locked-in syndrome? What is that? So locked-in syndrome is, is again uh, a condition that's very often confused um, with the vegetative state or at least uh, the two conditions are, can present uh, rather similarly. Um, locked-in patients have preserved cognitive functions so uh, mentally they are typically um, in very good shape. Uh, they're usually able to uh, communicate by moving their eyes or by blinking their eyes and that's typically how they are identified, how they are distinguished from vegetative state patients. So what causes vegetative states and locked-in syndrome? 
Well, that's a very difficult question. And actually, it's, it's the reason why these conditions are so difficult to understand and so difficult to distinguish between. There are many, uh, many different causes uh, of, of all of these conditions. Typically, uh, most of our patients will have been involved, uh, will, will have had a traumatic brain injury. So that is some kind of blow to the head. And a typical patient will have been involved in a, in a road traffic accident, either as a, a pedestrian hit by a car or as a, a driver or, or a passenger in a car. Um, that's the most common form. Uh, sporting injuries also uh, often result in traumatic uh, traumatic brain injuries, but there are there's a, a whole other class of uh, of brain injury that's non-traumatic and it's typically uh, the result of a loss of oxygen to the brain. So, um, for example, we see a fair number of patients who have been involved in so-called near drowning incidents, where they've they've been underwater long enough to starve the oxygen of, uh, uh, starve the brain of oxygen, uh, but nevertheless the the, the the patient hasn't died. Uh, similarly, skiing accidents aren't uncommon. People who end up uh, being buried under avalanches. Again, the, the brain is starved of oxygen for a prolonged period of time. And finally, cardiac arrest, um, heart attack can also produce a, a vegetative state, um, again, because uh, of a loss of oxygen to the brain. So it sounds like vegetative states and locked-in syndrome are actually quite medically similar, except that there's a difference in our ability to understand that person's awareness. So it sounds like link, or sorry, it sounds like locked-in syndrome. We know the person is aware, but vegetative states, we have either no idea or are fairly certain the person's not aware. That question is absolutely central to my research program. What is the difference between a vegetative state patient and, say, a, a locked-in patient, and and how can we tell? that difference. And I guess more crucially, is it possible that some patients who appear to be vegetative are actually um, totally locked in? So like a, a typical locked in patient, but not even able to move their eyes, not even able to, to blink to show us that they're there. And um, the way we've gone about this is by uh, using forms of uh, brain imaging, uh, typically a, a form of MRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, to try to see whether we can detect brain responses in some of our vegetative patients that would be indicative of some preserved level of awareness. Can you walk us through some of the tests that you run and how they work? I can. And perhaps the, the best way to set the stage for that is to tell you how it is that we detect awareness or consciousness, uh, typically at the bedside. Uh, I mean, you've all, I'm sure everybody will have seen a, a medical documentary or a drama where a patient uh, is asked to squeeze the doctor's hand if, uh, if they can hear the instruction to do so. And that's an important uh, clinical approach to, to assessing awareness because if, if a patient is able to squeeze a hand in response to command, then you know that they understand spoken language, you know that they can, uh, they can turn that uh, request into uh, an action, albeit a simple action like squeezing a hand. But what if the patient was totally physically incapable of behaving in any way at all? So they, they couldn't squeeze a hand or they couldn't blink an eye, couldn't move, move their eyes in any direction. Um, so what we've done is we've, we've used a, a type of functional brain imaging to see whether patients can make brain responses that are, are absolutely analogous to the hand squeezing. In a typical scenario, we'll ask the patient to imagine doing something. And the thing that we ask them to imagine doing is, is something that we know will activate a particular region of the brain. Our favorite task at the moment is to ask people to imagine that they're playing a game of tennis. And the reason for that is that 
if you imagine moving your arms around vigorously as you would if you were really in the middle of a, uh, uh, a rally at Wimbledon, then you activate a part of the brain known as the premotor cortex. And this is, uh, this is, uh, uh, it's right on the top and in the middle of the brain. And it's an area that is involved in setting up sequences of actions. It's not the area that actually creates those movements. It's the area that, uh, sets those movements up. So if you simply imagine that you are playing a game of tennis, the premotor cortex will reliably light up. So what we do is we put our patients who are assumed to be vegetative, they've got no physical responses, into the scanner and we ask them to imagine they're playing a game of tennis. And if their premotor cortex lights up when we ask them to do that, following the logic that I've, I've laid out about hand squeezing, we can conclude that they understood the command to imagine playing tennis and they turned that into an action, albeit an action of their brain. So how do you know for sure that what you're seeing in the scanner is actually an awareness at work rather than some kind of, I don't know, reflex or false positive? So that's a very, that's a very good question. And it's one that I can only answer by telling you that obviously we are extremely conservative in the way that we um, we try to understand these brain responses. So uh, we spend a lot of time working with healthy healthy participants in in the scanner, working out how reliable these responses are. And I can tell you, we've scanned hundreds and hundreds of healthy people imagining playing tennis in the scanner. <laughs> and the, the the activity in the premotor cortex that occurs as soon as you tell somebody to start doing that is just as reliable as getting healthy participants to squeeze your hand when you ask them to do it. That may seem uh, rather odd to people, but you know this is a very simple brain response, a, a part of the motor system in the brain. It's something that's incredibly reliable. Now, when, when we see this in a patient, of course, we can do a number of things to make sure uh, it's indicative of awareness. We can we can look at when it happens. Does it happen exactly when we tell the patient to do it? Does it turn off when we tell the patient to stop? Imagine playing tennis. Uh, can they do a variety of different tasks that we know that we know are associated with activity in different brain regions? And we go through all of these things one at a time to make sure that. Essentially, the patient's brain is responding exactly in exactly the same way that a healthy participant's brain would respond. And that's, that's how we're able to deduce that they are actually conscious. There is another way that we, we can know that a patient is conscious based on brain imaging, and that is to start asking them questions and getting them to use this method to give us those, the answers to the, those questions. So, for example, for some patients, we've, 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 we've asked questions and said, well, if the answer is yes, imagine playing tennis. And if the answer is no, do something completely different. And the great thing about this approach is we can ask them questions that we don't know the answers to, but that we can go and find out the answers to later. And obviously, if, if the patient is answering questions by changing their pattern of brain activity, and we are getting the correct answers to those questions, there can be no other explanation other than that the patient is conscious and is conveying that information. So in some senses, that's the, the ultimate test that the patient is actually conscious. So based on the work that you've done and some of the presumed vegetative people that you've tested, what percentage of presumed vegetative people are actually showing signs of awareness based on your tests? So that's a very, that's a very difficult question to answer precisely uh, because 
the patients that we tend to see, I, I think, are often the, the difficult cases. Um, so the numbers I'm going to tell you, I, I suspect, are, are rather conservative. But uh, of the patients that we see, we, we've conducted two group studies now, and about one in five of the patients who appear to be entirely vegetative, so by that I mean they make no responses at all to any form of external stimulation, but one in five of those people will be able to generate reliable uh, brain response is when in the fMRI scanner. So do we know, um, do we have some, I guess, anecdotal evidence that some people who have presumed to be in vegetative states have woken up and said that they were aware of what was happening around them? Yeah, well, we, we, we certainly do. Um, we have seen patients who uh, not only have uh, gone on to recover, but have been then able to report uh, the experiences that they had while we had previously presumed them to be in a vegetative state. For example, patients who we scanned, and then many months later, they, they came back having experienced some recovery. And we need to be a little bit careful by how, how we talk about recovery here. It's extremely rare for patients in this condition to go on to lead a, a, a full independent life. But nevertheless, some of them do go on to, uh, to improve significantly. And we've certainly seen patients who've done that and then been able to to tell us what the experience was like of being scanned many months earlier when we put them through the MRI thinking that they were in a vegetative state. Wow, this is really fascinating work. And it really brings forward the idea that some of these patients who are really very much trapped in their own body might someday be able to communicate with people in the outside world, even if it's just yes or no questions. It does. And um I mean, I think we're, we're a way off that at the moment. I, th I think it's very important that people uh, realize that where we are right now is I think we're getting pretty good at detecting these people. Uh, we have a number of methods for finding out um, who may appear to be in a vegetative state, but actually is in one of these completely locked in situations. Um, we're still working very hard and we're some way off being able to reliably communicate with those individuals or at least produce a system that they could use on a day to day basis for communicating. That's what we would really like to achieve in the, in the mid to long term. And that's going to take quite a bit more work. Does the diagnosis shift, um, the medical diagnosis shift between uh, deciding someone's in a vegetative state to move Moving someone into uh, being in a locked-in syndrome, does that change how they're treated or how people interact with those patients? Uh, it certainly does. Um, we we now have almost 20 years experience of uh, imaging these patients and, and detecting that some of them uh, have residual cognitive functions. There's, there's more going on there than was, was previously thought. And I can tell you that uh, it almost always changes uh, the way that the uh, patients are treated, the way that um, people act around them. And I, I think that's in in entirely natural. I mean, I, the, the, the clinical... Um, uh, clinically, the way one is supposed to treat these patients is as though they understand what's going on around them. And one would always want to be careful not to have conversations in front of them that you wouldn't want them to hear. But nevertheless, it's I think it's human nature that after many years uh, of a patient not responding, one might easily, uh, you know, easily forget. Um, and I'm sure many of these patients have experienced conversations that they may, uh, uh, you know, may, may have not wanted to uh, experience. So that, that is something that, that certainly changes in the, in, the, in the case of our patients once it's established that they are actually aware. So I was looking through some of the historical literature and also uh, some articles that I found online. And it seemed like, especially in the 90s, there was a lot of resistance to some of your work and ideas surrounding this topic. Why was there so much resistance? 
I think there's still a certain amount of resistance to it. I mean, I, I think in the beginning, the resistance was really, um, well, it was just so hard to believe that it, that it could be true. I mean, uh, I remember back in, in 97 when we did the first brain imaging, brain imaging study on a, on a patient who was presumed to be vegetative. Um, I mean, I was surprised as anybody else that we saw activity and this, this, that particular patient responded to, uh, her brain responded to familiar pictures of uh, her friends and family. And, you know, it, it just seemed unbelievable that there could be residual brain activity in a patient who'd pre presumed to be vegetative. And we, we, I mean, we went on to do, I think, even more extraordinary things, discovering that patients were fully conscious, communicating with some of these patients. I, I can completely understand why, if you don't necessarily completely understand the ins and outs of the science and the, um, exactly what we did, it's, it's, it's almost too, um, uh, you know, too fantastic to, 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 to believe. I think that, that sort of, um, I, uh, I think that, that, that resistance has subsided over the years because, you know, we've now demonstrated this again and again in many patients using different methods. So I, I think it's now generally accepted that these patients do exist and, um, you know, and, and that we are able to detect them in these ways. What are the next steps in your research? I think a really big question is how, how many of these patients are there? Um, you know, this is, as I said to you previously, there are many things that can result in a vegetative state. And uh, because of that, these patients end up in, in many different situations. Some are in care homes, some are in hospitals, some uh, are being cared for at home by their, their own families. So um, it's very hard to, to, to get a definitive list or number of how many patients are out there and by extension, it's very difficult for us to know how many conscious patients there might be. And I think people will be surprised um, when, you know, when, when we finally get to the, the bottom of that, just how many of these patients there are. Uh, I mean, another, you know, big question really is, is uh, can we, can we push this further to develop some technique for actually allowing um, reliable day-to-day -day communication between these patients and, and their families? And that's obviously an extremely important issue. Um, I can't pretend that I don't lie awake at night occasionally thinking, well, it's great. You know, I'm able to detect these patients, we were able to find out who's not in a vegetative state, but what then? What can we do? What can we do for them? And, um, you know, I would really like to be able to follow that, follow that up with some reliable method of, of communication that patients could even perhaps take home with them to allow them to, to communicate again. And I guess the third thing is, is, is therapy. I mean, people often say to us, well, this is great. You know, you can detect these patients, uh, but what, what are you going to do to, to fix them? And, you know, although that's not an area that I personally, um, working I, I i'm more concerned with working out um who's not in a vegetative state and trying trying to uh, make their lives as, as, as easy as possible the work that we do certainly does feed in to potential therapies to potential uh, drugs to potential types of perhaps surgery um that that may uh, again in the long term assist some of these patients or improve their condition do you think that uh, some of your research also helps us learn a little bit more about what it is to be conscious or aware? Because I guess that's really the central question. I think it does. Um, and, and this is something that's sort of come, come out of the research in, in a slightly unexpected way, I think. Uh, I mean, one, one of the things that um, we've been able to do is to develop um, uh, different ways of measuring consciousness that are, that are relevant to um, you know, to, to the healthy brain as well. So um, some of our recent work has shown that 
some of the methods that we did develop specifically to test consciousness in patients can actually tell us a little bit about what it means to be uh, what it means for a healthy person to be conscious and how does your consciousness differ from mine i mean looking at you in the brain scanner your brain in the in, in the scanner and my uh, brain in the scanner doing some of our tasks and tell us a little bit about the um what is what is similar about human consciousness what are the main characteristics and why is it that um what is it that makes you and i both conscious but say uh, a patient who sustained a serious brain injury non-conscious Adrian, thanks so much for being here. Your work is really fascinating. Thank you very much for having me. If you want to learn more about Adrian Owen and his work, you can visit owenlab.uwo.ca, a link which we'll include in our show notes for this episode. And you can find those show notes on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You can also, of course, find us on our Twitter feed and our Facebook page, where we post news related to our shows and where you can send us a message, leave a comment, or chat with other people about the show. And of course, you can always find us on iTunes, where you can subscribe to have new episodes delivered directly to your computer, phone, or tablet. You can also access all our previous episodes. And if you're really keen, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.